All right, so welcome to the next episode, the next half of the study, where we're going to go on offense. We're going to learn what does it take to be a man? What is a man? And if you've been following along in the book, this would be chapter seven and eight kind of combined into one episode. These are on holiness and humility. And I've, I've combined these two because I've already talked about humility a lot. I don't think we need one episode on humility, but it does combine. You really can't be holy unless you're humble. Um, as you've heard me say already, that humility is a sign of a man who's in love with Jesus Christ. We're starting this off with a pretty tough story, um, but there's a point to the story. So when my uh, partner and I in the Los Angeles Police Department got a call one day of a child abuse um, situation, and child abuse situations are always the absolute worst calls you could get as a police officer. And often what would happen is a child abuse call would come out of the radio for a unit, and that unit would suddenly find itself code six. It means in the middle of a different investigation, trying to get an arrest, pretty soon they have an arrest. They would do whatever it took to not have to take the child abuse. And then people would know that child abuse call was out there and all of a sudden all the cars would start getting loaded up with arrests or something, whatever it took to avoid the child abuse. And the reason was because um, it was long, it was emotionally taxing, and often you had to place kids in foster homes. It, it could be a, a, a 12, 16 hour day. And the, and the stories were so tragic and heartbreaking that it was really, you know, being a police officer dealing with violence and foot pursuits and vehicle pursuits and all that stuff was all fine, but to deal with children who've been traumatized was really the worst part of the job, at least for me. So my partner and I were coming out of roll call. And so rather than try to stick a car with this, they just gave it to my partner and me. And the reason was because this was a very specifically traumatizing event. And I was known as the Christian on, um, on mid watch and rampart division at that time. And so my partner looked at me resentfully knowing we've been handed a child abuse call because of my reputation as a Christian. Well, we get to the child abuse call and it's a five-year-old girl who um, complained to her school that it hurt when she peed, as I recall. And they had already gotten some uh, medical treatment and found out that she had gonorrhea. Now, as a police officer, now that she has gonorrhea, there's only one way a girl can get gonorrhea. So you have to now find out what's the crime. Clearly, there's been a crime, but now you have to ascertain what is the crime. And so you sat down and that girl described to me sexual intercourse, which is what occurred to her all the time from her father, her father's best friend and her uncle. To, to put the, the crime of rape together, you actually have to have the victim describe to you what rape is, because a lot of people say rape and they don't really mean rape. To have a five-year-old girl describe that to you is one of the worst events that I've ever been to in my life, through in my life. So I found out this absolutely horrible tragedy that's going on. And so um, we took her to her mother. Her, her parents, we had learned, were divorced so instead of having to place her in foster care, we were able to take her back to her mom because she would be safe with mom away from dad. So one of, probably the second worst thing I've been through in my life was explaining to her mother what had been happening to her five-year-old daughter. And uh, you can imagine just all that and the wailing and the tears uh, as we went through this. Then as we were getting ready to leave, normally we would hand, then hand the case to the detectives. The child abuse detectives would deal with it from then on. However, as we were leaving, the mother said, I'm worried about my son. Well, what do you mean your son? Well, my two-year-old son is with the dad right now. Okay, now we have a child who's in imminent danger. So the dad lived about two miles away. And it was, I think when we started this investigation, it was something like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I think now it was like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So that's how long it had taken. And so we, we drive down to where the dad is. Now, I was too young 
and not married and didn't have kids to understand the effect that this would have had I had kids. My partner, who was a huge bodybuilder, he was like five foot nine and 240 pounds of solid muscle, had a daughter, a five-year-old daughter who looked a lot like the girl that we had just left. And so I didn't realize my partner was starting to lose his mind a little bit as we were driving over the two miles to, to the dad's. So we go up these dilapidated stairs in the ghetto. I pull out my gun. We get to the door and I kick the door down and I run in with my gun out and the dad jumps out. It's a little studio apartment. The dad jumps up and he's naked and the son's naked, the two-year-old son. So I just go across the room. I holster the gun. I grab the dad by the throat and I get ready to hit him. Not that that was department procedure, but you can imagine um, the emotion going through me. Well, the emotion going through me was nowhere near like what was going through my partner. So as I grabbed him by the throat and I ran back to hit him, my partner, his massive forearm came, moved me out of the way and he pulled his gun out. He was left-handed, pulled his gun out and put it up to the dad and was gonna pull the trigger. And I remember out of the corner of my eye, all I could see was the son, two-year-old standing there looking at two LA cops about to execute his father. I was able to grab a hold of my partner's gun and twist it around. And what I did was I put my finger behind the trigger guard. We were trained to not get shot with our own guns, which happens a lot to police officers. And one of the things you do is somebody, if you're wrestling for a gun, is you get your finger behind the trigger. That way, if someone pulls the trigger, they can't engage the hammer and it can't shoot you. This is what I did. My partner got my, my finger behind his trigger and the two of us fought for about 30 seconds over his gun. And really my partner was completely out of his mind and I was fighting for not just his life, but my own. I mean, he was so out of his mind. I was afraid he's going to shoot this bad guy and me both. Well, after about 30 seconds of us fighting, all of a sudden there was a yell at the door and we both looked up and our lieutenant was standing in the doorway, which was really unusual because lieutenants don't leave the police station normally. But this lieutenant happened to come out just to do a visit. He was a new lieutenant, see how his men were doing. He sees us fighting over a gun on the middle of the ground and shocked my partner after I was able to get his gun away and slide it to the lieutenant. That night, after we'd written all the reports and taken care of all the stuff and gotten the son back to the mom, um, my partner told me, you should have let me kill that guy. He's just gonna abuse more kids. Now, he, he may have been right, um, but I ended up fighting to save this guy's life. My partner never talked to me again. He asked for a new partner the next day. We had been good friends before that, and I never talked to that guy again. Here's the point of that story when it comes to holiness is I thought of myself as a ruthless L.A. policeman. If you had asked me if I had been put in that situation, what I would have done, I might have said I was the one who was going to pull the trigger. And yet in a moment of deep stress, trauma, panic, whatever you want to call it, who I was came out in that moment. I was not the ruthless cop I thought I was. I was a child of the Most High God. And I fought to save the life of a man who, frankly, according to the Old Testament, deserved death but death in justice and in courts and with his peers and a chance to repent, not death at the hand of cops who are, our job is to protect the public and to put people in jail and let, let the public figure it out. It's not our job to figure it out. So in that moment, my true identity came out. I thought I was an LA cop first and foremost. What turned out that I was first and foremost was a child of God, a forgiven sinner who wanted to give other forgiven sinners a break. Why am I bringing all that up? Because who you are in that moment of panic comes out. And there are moments and times when who you are, the thoughts you filled your head with, the things you've done, the books you've read, the movies you've watched, 
all of those, the the decisions that you made, the little decisions day by day, and something happens, and suddenly who you are is exposed for the good or for the bad. And you think you're the good Christian and someone cuts you off and the F word comes out of your mouth and you scream and you flip the guy off and you suddenly realize, hmm, maybe I'm not the man I thought I was. Our identity needs to be holiness. Holiness is what we're called to be. The Bible calls us to be faithful witnesses that stand up for the Lord. The book of Revelation, if you've been watching this on pray.com, one of the days of the week is Tim Dunn speaking on Revelation. I would very much encourage you to go get that. And Tim, you'll hear Tim Dunn say over and over again that in the book of Revelation, we're told to see, hear, and do. That's the point that Revelation was written for. Not so that we could game the system or know the future or make the right stock purchases when we see something happen. No, we are to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ and to see, hear, and do. That, that's the whole point of Revelation. That is our walk here is to be holy, see, hear, and do, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. So who we are in that moment of panic is exposed. Are we holy or are we not holy? All of us are on a road to holiness. None of us are, are perfect, but where are we on that road? So if I asked you, God is blank, fill in that blank. God is blank. Well, I would suggest, I don't know what you said. I don't think in your mind, what does that come? What is the first thing that comes to you? Or what is the thing that you would say? And if we ask 95% of Christians in America today, God is what? They would all say love. God is love. Does the Bible say God is love? Yes, once. It says it in 1 John chapter 4, actually in two places, kind of repeating himself, that God is love. But it says God is holy over and over and over and over again. God is holy. In fact, there are a couple of places in Scripture, Revelation and Isaiah, where we hear God is holy, holy, holy. When we say it three times, it means extreme emphasis. So in my identity, I'm several things. I'm a father. I'm a ex-police officer. I'm a ministry leader. I'm a man. Those different things have to do with my identity. But if you said, well, who is Ken Harrison? What I would like to think of as my identity primarily is as a holy, sanctified disciple of, of Jesus Christ. That's what my disciple, my identity would be. I am also happen to be Swedish. Swedish is one thing, but if you said, what is Ken Harrison? He's Swedish. That would be misleading. It would not be untrue, but it would be misleading. But we see how in scripture, God is love. Yes, he is. But he said he's love over here once. He's holy over and over again. First Peter tells us, be holy as I am holy. What's your identity? Be holy. What does holy mean? It means to be separate from this world. You are to be a separate being. We're told, do not be a friend of the world. Anyone who wants to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God, it says in James. So as we think about ourselves as being holy, then what is the shift and change? That, because how would we treat other people if we're holy? If we understand that God is holy, and our job is to be holy like God, then we understand that our definition of ourselves does not come from the world. It comes from scripture. And the world is always changing its definition of what's acceptable. So when I was young and I was looking up to be a man, I remember Burt Reynolds was sort of the epitome of, of what it was to be a man, right? And Burt Reynolds would always have a shirt unbuttoned down to here, his hairy chest all out and his gold chains on. And that was a man, face, you know, big mustache, hairy chest. Now we see the world's definition of a man is completely different. In fact, it's almost the opposite. It's completely shaved, no hair on your body, no gold chains, shirt buttoned up to here. 
Burt Reynolds real macho today, sort of overly sensitive. The world is constantly changing its ideals and its definition of what is okay or what to attain because the world is run by Satan. Satan still runs this world. He still rules this world. Jesus Christ has won the victory, but we're still in a time where he, the, the, the devil is the Lord of this world. So let's not get caught up in what the world's definition of who we are is or what winning is. And this is a part of the problem we have as we shift from a, a subjugation to the world and we move into discipleship and holiness is that we have to understand that the definition we were given for winning, for success, is a lie. It is a lie that comes from the great liar, the Satan. So what is the definition then of winning and of success? So if we want to win, if we want to be overcomers in this world, if we want to, as, as it says in Revelation, be sit on Christ's throne at his father's right hand, we need to understand what winning is. And winning comes from overcoming the world, holiness being separate from the world. You see how these all these kind of come together. It all has to do with conquering the world's system, the world's definition of what is, and coming over to what God says what is. And that is counter to our sinful nature. The more we grow close to the Lord, the more natural this becomes. I, I often have to, we're going to have a, a talk on sex and marriage coming up, but I often talk to younger men who are constantly just struggling with lust. How do I overcome this situation of lust? And this, the thing I always give them is you've got to become holy. When you become holy, when you fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you begin to see people through God's eyes and not the world's definition of eyes. You begin to see women in a, as daughters of the Most High God, very much beloved by Him. And the idea of wronging them, of looking at them through those eyes, starts to become something that becomes foreign to you. And you begin to see them as human beings with dreams and daughters of, of, of some man and some woman instead of sexual objects. And you begin to get freed from the world system of how we view people. And that comes from holiness as a result of humility. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of vain ambition or selfish conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. When we consider others better than ourselves, we're not about our own ambitions that are selfish or our own uh, vanity, then we begin to be separated from this world and be able to see people as the beings loved by our Lord, as our brothers and sisters in Christ, not as someone that we can use. There's a story on humility about a man from the early 1800s who was standing in the freezing cold by a river and he couldn't figure out how to get across. And all of a sudden this cavalcade of horses, horses ridden by men comes running by him and they almost run him over. He jumps out of the way. And he's looking in the faces intently as all the riders go flying by him with zero concern for the fact that there's an old man in front of a river who clearly needs help. And as the last man that cavalcade comes by, the man jumps out in front of him and says, Sir, would you have mercy on me? Would you help me across the river? And the man jumps off his horse and he helps this old, the old man up on the horse. And then he gets back up on the horse with him. And he not only takes him across the river, but he takes him a couple miles to his cottage. And he helps the man off of the horse and he looks at the old man and he says, sir, I saw that you let all the other riders go by, but it was me you asked for a ride. Why? And the old man says, I saw all those riders go by me and with zero concern for my situation. But in your eyes, I saw compassion and empathy. And I knew that you would have mercy on an old man. And the rider thanked him. And, and with that, went, upon thanking him, Thomas Jefferson, the president of the United States, went riding off into the forest. There's something about humility and holiness that when we see that as our identity it dictates how we see life we begin to be able to see people through god's eyes not our own eyes 
So we see that as we begin to identify ourselves as holy sons of the Most High God, we're able to fill ourselves with humility. Humility is simply taking the lenses off of our own pride and seeing things as they really are. See, pride is where we shrink the world into something that we can control. All the way back to the fall here again, we see that we want to control our world. We want to shrink the world into something where we're the big deal. When we actually see the world as it is, this massive monstrous thing, we can feel lost in it unless we have our identity rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride is that thing where we put goggles on. We see things that are not really there. We see ourselves as more important and bigger than we are because it's really hard to imagine that we're on this earth with seven or eight billion people, which is a number that most of us can't even conceive of. And we're just one being. And then you look at the size of this little tiny earth. I had a friend of mine who was a, one of the original astronauts who was talking about seeing the earth from the moon and saying all he could see everywhere was just blackness and the massive infinity of space. And they look down and see this little blue thing. And he felt so small and so tiny. Well, our pride says, I'm big. I control my world. Faith says, no, I'm little. I, I'm so small in the, in, this, in the universe. I'm almost completely insignificant. And yet in faith, I am significant because God loves me. So now that we see that humility and holiness go hand in hand, humility is a sign of a man who's in love with Jesus Christ. Now we begin to go on offense. And the next things that come from that are courage and generosity. We're going to go to the next two chapters of the book in the next episode. We see that when we become holy, when we become humble, now we can be truly courageous because now we don't see ourselves as the most important person in the room. In fact, we go back to Ephesians 2, 3. We see other people as more important than ourselves. And when we do that, now we become bold as a lion because we will stand on the truth no matter what happens to us. Because what happens to us isn't what's important. It's what happens to the kingdom of God and this earth that is important. So we'll see you in the next episode on generosity and courage.